Amen. Well, if you've got a Bible with you, I'd love you to turn to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 3. And we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 19 this morning. Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave them the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Amen. Well, let's pray as we come back to Mark's Gospel. Heavenly Father, we come full of thanks for your word. We want to come and pray now with the psalmist, oh, how we love your law. We meditate on it all day long. Father, we love your word and we pray you'd give us ears to hear what you have to say to us now. As we humbly pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you may or may not be interested to know that uh, next Sunday is the the first uh, cup final of uh, the the football season in this this country. The League Cup final will be played at Wembley uh, between uh, Liverpool, the Mighty Reds as they're known in our house for obvious reasons, and uh, Chelsea. Thousands and thousands and thousands of fans will descend on that part of northwest London next week to watch their teams attempt to win a trophy. The streets will be packed, Wembley Way will be full, and every seat of the 90,000-seater capacity stadium will be filled. And then whoever wins will take the trophy back home, and at some point they'll have an open-top bus parade, and they'll celebrate with the fans in the city. You might remember seeing something like that in Swansea. About 10 years ago, back in 2013, we won our one and only trophy. The League Cup was ours 11 years ago. And the team paraded through the streets and uh, thousands of people came out of all over the place and they were celebrating and cheering and seeing 
the, the trophy and, and the team, and, and you wonder, well, where did all of these people uh, come from? Safe to say it's probably not going to happen uh, for a little while, in Swansea at least. Uh, but maybe you saw in the news this week, uh, sadly, that uh, there in Kansas City, there was a big crowd. They'd won the Super Bowl, and there was uh, thousands and thousands of people there, and, and there was a shooting, and one person died, and, and 22 were injured. But you saw the news, and the, the crowds were huge. You couldn't see for all the red that they were wearing their team's uh, colours. And this morning, as we return to chapter 3 of Mark's Gospel, I want us to have that picture in mind of, of a massive, massive crowd. I want you to have that picture of your, in your mind of, of a huge crowd that's filling every spare piece of space. It's easy to imagine when we think of sport or maybe a music festival, but it doesn't really happen today, does it, for what we might call a, a religious leader. I suppose sometimes there's a big crowd when the Pope goes on tour. There's nothing special that said, about worth seeing him. But as we see crowds flocking to Jesus in our passage this morning, I don't want us to think of Jesus and witness these events in religious terms. Hopefully we're seeing as we're going through Mark's gospel that Jesus is not about organized religion. We've seen him challenging and rebutting the established religion of the day. What he has been saying has struck a nerve with the religious types who've been watching his every move, so much so that it has led them to oppose Jesus in increasing ferociousness. They're really not happy. He's come, and and through his message of grace, the forgiveness of sins, of authority and power found in himself, he is challenging the status quo of the religious leaders of the day. And the Pharisees are increasing in their opposition towards Jesus. And that came to a head in verse 6 that we saw two weeks ago and we read earlier this morning when they went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. And I mentioned briefly last time how ironic and how tragic that is that here are men who were outwardly, they seemed decent outwardly, they were devoted to honoring the law of Moses. They wanted to keep every single part of those burdensome traditions, and yet they are deliberately planning to commit murder. Jesus wasn't allowed to heal on the Sabbath as far as they were concerned, but they were allowed to plot his death. And it's all showing us that the presence of Jesus was exposing these Pharisees for who they really were. In the words of Isaiah 29, verse 13, these people come near to me with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. So you see, simply put, the Pharisees had a wrong view of God. And because of that, they had a low view of their sin. Unlike the Old Testament writers, they didn't grasp that knowing God meant knowing him in his infinite holiness. That searches our hearts. And if we are Christians this morning then we know that our hearts are by nature, they're they're self-centered, they are perverse, they are deceitful above all else. And if you haven't come to see that, then you won't have come to see your need of the grace of God, as embodied and proclaimed here in the Gospels in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. If you've come to understand, to see who God is, if you really know him through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will know that you could never, ever dream of earning his favor by what you do, no matter how hard you try. And so we saw 
how the Pharisees were displaying how inconsistent they were by saying with their mouths that they were serious about God, but in their actions, they joined with the supporters of Herod to see off Jesus. They wouldn't associate with these lower class sinners like the tax collectors, but tragically, they were very happy to associate themselves with upper class sinners to plot against Jesus. That's the background of where we've been in recent weeks. And it is against this backdrop now that Jesus withdraws himself from the situation. We pick up again this morning in verse 7 of chapter 3, where we're told by Mark that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. Here is Jesus, and he's, he's leaving the opposition behind. There's something symbolic in this. He's breaking away from the old established religion. Equally, Jesus is not going to be dictated to by these Pharisees. He was following a heavenly timetable, a divine plan. And he knew that the time for final confrontation lay in the future. And so he withdraws to the lake. And as he does that, we continue to see Mark communicating the main point of his gospel. Remember, in all we find in this book, we're being shown who Jesus really is. And in light of that, you and I must respond rightly to him. And so this morning, the the spotlight through the word of God is turned on to each of us as Mark shows us how not to respond to Jesus. There are two responses in our passage this morning that force us to ask this question of ourselves. Am I really following Jesus? You listening to this today, are you really following Jesus Christ? Maybe you'll see something of yourself in this passage this morning and recognize that actually you really aren't following Jesus. And my prayer is that the the Holy Spirit would convict you of your, your sinful unwillingness to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and that you might come to him this morning and really start following him for the very first time. And for you already following the Lord Jesus, you who are a Christian, that you'll be refreshed, that you'll be encouraged in your Lord and in your Savior, and that you'll be reminded again of who he is, and that will lead you to thank him, to give all praise to him, and to encourage you on in your walk uh, with the Lord uh, this week. And so firstly then, one wrong way to respond to Jesus is that you stay in the crowd. You stay in the crowd. In verses 7 to 9, what do I mean by that? Simply that you are either interested in Jesus because of what you can get, out of him or you won't come to Jesus in faith you simply skirt around the entries out of intrigue out of interest out of fascination and friends if if that is how you see Jesus this morning as that if that's how you respond to him then you have missed the point you've missed the very point of who he is and what he has come to do so look with me in verse 7 where Jesus withdraws with his disciples uh, to the lake and we're told that a large crowd from Galilee followed him The large crowd follows Jesus, and news is spreading fast. Now, there is no Twitter. There is no Instagram to share the latest filtered updates with pictures of where Jesus' ministry is taking him. There's no 24-hour news channel. There's not even a newspaper to publish the latest miracles of Jesus, and yet news is spreading. It's spreading fast. It's spreading far and wide. Jesus hasn't been publicizing himself. Remember, we've actually seen Him tell people, like the leper at the end of chapter 1, not to tell others about him yet. But Jesus hasn't been obeyed. And so crowds and crowds and crowds of people come to Jesus wherever he goes. And Mark tells us 
that these people had heard what Jesus was doing, and many had come from all parts of the map. We've got a list of places in verse 8, and that represents almost every part of that area of the Middle East. We've got Gentile areas, Jewish areas, mixed areas. There's north and south and east and west. They're all listed here, and they're all places that aren't exactly nearby. These days, it might just be a couple of hours' journey in the car, but back then, when almost everybody walked everywhere, these people were making a real effort to get to see Jesus. So, so these events are, are things that would have happened over a number of days as they would have gathered there from all these different places as they took their time to get there. The fame of Jesus is, is far-reaching. He is attracting people from all kinds of places. He is, in the words of Isaiah, really the light to the Gentiles. The prophet reminds us of that. And so we're seeing this large crowd gather and we might think on first reading ah oh, it's wonderful isn't it it's wonderful that there's such a large crowd there to see jesus but numbers aren't everything numbers are important of course they are but they're not everything it's certainly an opportunity this moment but this crowd also acts as an obstacle to jesus's ministry why do i say that well it's pretty clear that many of those who've who've come from all over to see this jesus they're little more than sensation seekers. Sadly, there are many people who, who treat church like that. They go to church, they, they're looking for a good show, they want to consume good content, they want something that is slick and professional, they want a thrill, they want some action, and for them, Jesus Christ is, is just the means to that end. And that's what's going on here at the side of the lake. The crowd has come and they are, they're looking for some action. They want to see a miracle. They want to be entertained by Jesus. And as you know, if you've been following along through Mark so far, though Jesus has absolutely come to help those in need. He is the one who is full of compassion. The physical needs of those he met were a real concern for Jesus, but his greatest priority was preaching and teaching the word of God. And that is why he told, in verse 9, the disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. There was such a, a scrum of people pressing on him that there was this need to have a small boat ready so that he could uh, get some distance and be heard loud and clear without being interrupted by someone else coming and trying to, to touch him. And you know, sometimes in children's storybooks, there are the pictures of Jesus and he's surrounded by sheep and it always seems quiet and people are sat in a nice little neat group on a hill uh, somewhere while he speaks to them. Well, that's done away with here, isn't it? That is not the description. Mark is showing us very clearly that early in the ministry of Jesus in Galilee, he's a, he's a popular leader, but he's being harassed and jostled by all sorts of people. And this crowd in particular is actually described in quite a menacing way. That word crowding in the original language is more like pressing or crushing. And when they were pushing forward to touch him, that is more like mobbing Jesus. It's not a pretty picture. There are those who, who are mobbing Jesus. They want to get close to Jesus because they want something from him. Maybe they do want to be healed. They, they want to get close to him enough so that would happen because they know that he has already healed many. And so there is this big crowd with many needs, many real needs maybe. And some though are just there for the thrill of it. 
but the, the pushing forward and all the scrambling to get to Jesus, it's not a response of faith. It's not a response of faith. They are there for themselves. They are there for what they can get from Jesus, which is why that boat is prepared, ready, so he can still do what he came to do. Again, think of that huge crowd at a sports match or at the Glastonbury Festival or other music type events. The crowd is vast, but the crowd is what remains. Nobody is willing to step out of the crowd. They've come from all over the country. Some of them have spent days trying to get to this lakeside to see Jesus, but they're drawn by the drama. They come because of the headlines, the headline-grabbing events of, of healings and exorcisms. They aren't there for Jesus himself. They aren't there for Jesus himself, simply what Jesus can do. And the testimony of most in the crowd that day wouldn't have been any better or more use than that of the demons. Sure, they like Jesus. They want to see more of Jesus. But it never goes beyond that. They don't want to get to know him. They are happy as they are. They just want what Jesus can do for them and then be on their way. They remain outsiders. And friends, this morning, that is why I want to say to you, don't stay in the crowd don't stay in the crowd that's where you are this morning you're in the crowd because you're keeping Jesus at arm's length you, you don't want to know him personally and I want to say to you don't remain as an observer you say you're interested in Jesus you're here this morning you might even say that you like Jesus oh you've got time for Jesus because of the kind things he said the nice things he did but it goes no further than that for you and if that is as far as you're willing to go, that is not far enough. Because if you think that the crowd is the best place to, to stay this morning, if you choose to remain an outsider to the Lord Jesus Christ and, and you look on him from a distance, but you don't come to him to know him personally in repentance and faith, then you might say that you have time for Jesus. And you might have great respect for what he did and the power that he had. But if that's as far as it goes, what will await you is the rightful justice of God against you for all eternity in hell. Because you won't have believed that Jesus really is who he says he is, as Mark has been showing him and revealing himself to us here in this gospel. Friends, that is your end if you will not leave the crowd. And so I want to urge you this morning, don't stay there. Don't stay in the crowd. Are you, friend really following Jesus this morning or are you just an onlooker you're listening this morning to the word of God the Holy Spirit is prodding you and is saying to you why are you not following the Lord Jesus yet why don't you trust him why don't you give your life to him friend don't stay in the crowd any longer step out in faith from it believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved from your sin I really want to underline that you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ you must believe personally in him and that's because of the second response to Jesus this morning found in verses 10 to 12 and it's this this is another wrong way you can respond to Jesus you say you believe you say you believe maybe that's where you're at as you listen this morning you're someone who says that you believe in God and you might be wondering 
Well, how on earth is that a wrong response to Jesus? And friends, the answer to that is this. Saying you believe doesn't go far enough. Look at verses 10 to 12 with me to see where I'm coming from. Remember that this this big crowd has gathered because they want to be healed or they've got relatives who want to be healed. But Mark gives us a detail here which shows us that actually there's something deeper going on. In everything Jesus does, there's a spiritual dynamic to it. His power and authority wasn't to, to heal only on the level of ordinary medical treatment. There was something spiritual going on here. How do we know? Because Mark records for us in verse 11 that the, the demonic is present. There are impure spirits. And whenever they saw him, we're told, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Now, this isn't the first time in Mark's gospel where we have uh, come across these impure spirits. We read of them uh, back in chapter 1 in the synagogue in Capernaum, where Jesus healed a man who was possessed by such a spirit. Again, we are confronted with the reality of dark spiritual forces. And there are many skeptics in the world, many you're one of them listening this morning, and you think that all this talk of demons, of impure spirits, is all made up myths. You think it's some first century simpletons not understanding really what they were seeing, and that such things can be explained by medical conditions like epilepsy maybe, or schizophrenia. But we must remember that the gospel accounts are accurate. They are historical, eyewitness testimonies of all that went on in the days of Jesus. And so, as we saw back in chapter 1, we must not overplay this, but we must not underplay it either. We must not ignore the reality of darkness, of impure spirits, of, of the spiritual realm. These things are not confined to the past, and we make a big mistake if we think that is so. Neither must we write this account off as something that we can't understand. It's all a little bit not what we are used to. Because here we read, these impure spirits, they speak real words to Jesus. They are articulate as Jesus confronts them and drives them out. And you notice, they don't just speak any old words. They, they don't just say something offensive or something that doesn't make any sense. They speak with clarity and accuracy, actually, of who Jesus is. They cry out, you are the Son of God. You are the Son of God. These impure spirits, they're they're non-physical powers that have obviously been operating on people in the crowd. They've been defiling them and making them behave in ways that are not human. But these spirits now know that they are in the presence of authority. In Jesus, they know there is power greater than they could ever have. They know that in Jesus, we don't merely have a great healer, but one with spiritual power and authority of a far higher order than they. And so that is why they fall down before him. They know they are inferior to the superior Lord Jesus. They recognize that here is one who is filled with God's spirit. And so they loudly declare his divine identity. Apart from the declaration of the father back at Jesus' baptism in chapter 1, these impure spirits are the only ones so far in Mark's gospel to truly and rightly recognize who Jesus really is. But Jesus refuses to accept their testimony about him. We read there in verse 12, but he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. 
what these impure spirits say isn't wrong. So why does Jesus order them to be silent? Well, as we touched on before in Mark's gospel, it's because Jesus wants such a confession to come from the mouth of someone who understands who he is and submits to him in his power and authority with delight and not terror. Jesus has all authority over these demons. And yet, as we're told in James chapter 2 and verse 19, even the demons believe that God exists and shudder. So what we have here from these demons is not a cry of faith, but it's a cry of despair. It was not a cry of joy to know who Jesus is or a cry of loyalty to him, but a cry of malice, a cry of hatred, a cry of opposition. It could well have even been a calculated thing to cry this out as loudly as they could to to try and destroy Jesus' ministry. Maybe they hoped that there'd be a a suggestion of a link between Jesus and those who recognized his, his true identity. And we've got to remember in all this that Satan has been opposing the ministry of Jesus right from the very beginning through the Pharisees' rejection of Jesus' claims in the last chapter. And now here he's trying to scupper things from a, from a different angle through demons recognizing him. But neither the Pharisees nor the demons really understood who Jesus was. They saw him only as a destroyer and not as a savior. And that, friends, is why I say to you this morning... It's not enough to say you believe. It's not enough. You can't say you believe in some God, some kind of God out there, some kind of higher power, or even that you think that the Christian God's the best one, and he'll understand that you've tried to live as best as you can and the good things you've done, and and you've tried your best, and so you'll believe in him and, and hope for the best. It's not enough. As I've just said, the The demons believe that there's one God, but they shudder. They shudder. They know that's not enough because they still know what this means. They still know that they will be subject to the right and just wrath of God against them in their willful rebellion. Here in these verses, we're seeing clearly again who Jesus really is. He is the Lord of all. He is characteristic of all divine authority over evil. He commands them to be silent. He can sovereignly command all things, including these impure spirits. He can rebuke evil. He can subdue evil. He can defeat evil. And he will go on to do that. And he has accomplished that once and for all at the cross. This, friends, is why Jesus tells them to be silent, because the Son of God has come to be the Savior of the world by living and dying as the suffering servant. The work of the cross is absolutely vital for a proper understanding of who Jesus is. And without that, we cannot really know him. Knowing Jesus as the Son of God or the Redeemer of the world, without knowing how he will redeem, it would lead us to an incomplete view of him. And that is why Jesus is so concerned to preach and to teach. That is why that boat was there in verse 9, ready for him to to pull back from the scrum, to be out on the lake where he could be heard clearly to teach them about the kingdom of God, that they must respond to him. Yes, he has been healing, and he has been driving out demons. And that proves that the kingdom of God is here, in the coming of Jesus, a new age is beginning, but this will not make sense to people, unless they can hear, unless they can come to know what it is really all about. Jesus' authority over all things is total. 
Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does its successive journeys run. And these demonic forces are left with no other choice than to confess his sovereignty and to do as he says. Let's be really clear here. There is no contest between Jesus and these impure spirits. There is no compatibility between Jesus and the demonic. And here we see clearly that Jesus is the most powerful one. And when he meets these unclean spirits, he is obviously completely supreme over them. Brothers and sisters, I trust that you will take encouragement from that with you into this week. Jesus is absolutely supreme over all things. Over that which we can see and over that which we can't. There is none that is greater than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is supreme. He is the one with all authority. And he knows you and he loves you and you know him and you trust in him. This is your God and you have come to see him for who he is as your great redeemer, as your gracious Lord. You have seen his supremacy at the cross of Calvary. And you have bowed the knee in adoration that the Lord Jesus Christ would come for you, for someone like you, in your need, to lift you up from the pit and to set you upon a solid rock to begin a new life in him. This is who Jesus is. So total and so final is his supremacy that it is acknowledged by these impure spirits. They confess it. Though they do not believe in him, they can't but confess that Jesus is the Son of God. And all of this begs the question, friends, if this is who Jesus truly is, if we are seeing him in all power and all authority again this morning, if we are seeing his total lordship over all things, if we are seeing that he is supreme over every realm, if we are seeing that Jesus Christ is Lord, then why would you not believe in him? Why would you simply say, Oh, I believe in a God? When that's not enough to say. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. God revealed in the flesh. The man who is God. The one who has all authority. That is what you must do this morning. You must stop with the generalities. You must stop with the respectability. All while denying the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You must come to him this morning and confess him for who he is. The Son of God. And you must do that. Not begrudgingly or rejecting that or doing it with malice. But with joyful acceptance that God has come in the flesh. That he has revealed himself. And you can know him. I wonder, friend, are you following Jesus Christ this morning? Are you really following Jesus? The question isn't, do you believe in a God? Or do you try your best? Or do you go to church? No, the question is, what have you done with Jesus? Are you rejecting him this morning? Or are you really following him? You see, Mark is painting this picture for us. The Pharisees and the demons, they thought they knew who Jesus really was. But neither of those groups really understood the truth. They didn't see Jesus as their saviour. I wonder if he is your saviour this morning. 
Is the Jesus you know, the, the Lord of your life, the Lord of all things, the suffering servant who comes with all authority, the one who here in Mark 3 was not willing for his identity to be fully revealed yet so that he might live the life that we could not and die the death that we deserved so that we might not perish, but we might have everlasting life. Friends, this is who Jesus is. And remaining far off from him in the unbelieving crowd, remaining in generic belief about some God, is not the response that Jesus deserves. He's the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, and you must come to know him for yourself. Maybe you've done that this morning. You know him. This is your God. And you come with praise and thanks for who he is, and all of his power and his authority, that he knows you and that he loves you. And you're so grateful that he has drawn you from the crowd and you have put your faith in him. You must come to know this Jesus for yourself. Because if you don't know him as your saviour, you will know him as your judge. And friends, that is a fearful thing. And a day is coming when it will be too late for you to respond in the right way, in repentance and in faith. And so that is why this morning you have heard how not to respond to Jesus so that you might rightly respond to him. Don't stay where you are any longer, but come to him and know him as Lord and Savior that you might know hope and peace and love and joy that all springs from a real personal knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to him this morning, won't you? Don't delay any longer. There are many wrong ways to respond to Jesus and only one right way as you repent and believe in him. I wonder which way will it be for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that helps us to see the Lord Jesus for who he really is. Father, help us to respond to him as we should. Help us by your spirit to repent and to believe in him and to not stay in our unbelief any longer. We're so grateful for the lordship of our saviour. Thank you that many of us can say that we know him and we love him and we trust him. We give you all of our praise and all of our thanks and ask for grace to love and to praise him more this week in his name. Amen.